Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Leviticus chapter 16. As we continue in sacrifices, substitutions, and scapegoats as we've been working our way. This is part two. Just to warn you, uh, I know we've been moving through Leviticus at a pretty good clip. But chapter 16 has now become a three-week series as I realized I would not be able to finish this week. And so I know before in advance, which usually doesn't happen, that it'll at least be three weeks. But that's because Leviticus 16 is so integral to all of Scripture. It's the highlight, the climax here in Leviticus in the Old Testament. Once you got Leviticus 16, I'm going to ask you to bring your attention to the monitors, if you would. <clears throat> and as you do, you'll see that there is, uh, there's some goats, and they're for sale there in Kathmandu. Now, what a wonderful name of a city, Kathmandu, Nepal. And an online article from the Associate Press writes that during the 15-day Dasan festival, Hindu families fly, uh, fly kites, host feasts, visit temples, where tens of thousands of goats, buffaloes, chickens, and ducks are sacrificed to please the gods and goddesses as part of a practice that dates back centuries. This is something you might see in Leviticus or the old, old ancient Israel at one time. Animal rights activists have been, been running a campaign to put a stop to the sacrifices in this country, speaking of India or Nepal, excuse me, where four out of five people are Hindu and animal sacrifice is a deeply rooted tradition. One devotee remarks of the sacrifice that it is a tradition that our fathers and grandfathers have followed and will continue to follow this path. We believe offering the blood to the goddess Kali will please her and bless us. The meat is not wasted and we distribute it with neighbors and we all feast. Sound familiar? Sound kind of like what we're seeing here in Leviticus as we've been working our way through with some difference of who they're trying to please. But as you can see from this article, religions and sacrificing of animals is something that many have done over time to please and find favor with their gods, their goddesses, their idols, so on and so forth. Animal sacrifice has been practiced throughout the centuries by people around the world in religious activities. But as we've been working through our study through Leviticus, We read that God has instituted four temporary solutions in his redemption plan. Last week, we began our study in Leviticus 16 and the introduction of the fourth and last temporary solution, and that was the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is a holy day that's still observed by Jews around the world. They did it here several weeks ago. It was a full day of solemn observance and worship. It was the climax of the Jewish calendar and Jewish life. One teacher notes that on this day, the Day of Atonement was the one day out of the year when God would provide a way for which everyone's sin, speaking of Israel, could be forgiven and the nation made holy 
again. Pastor John MacArthur notes that even with the most scrupulous observance of the required sacrifices, we, we saw that as we worked our way through 1 through 7 of cha- uh, chapter 1 through 7 of Leviticus, there were many of those things and the many sins and defilements that would still become un- unacknowledged and therefore without specific amends, this special inclusive sacrifice was designed to cover all those things that might have been forgotten or unacknowledged in the other sacrifices. In other words, as we saw last week, the Day of Atonement answers this question. What happens when Israel fails to obey the commands of God? It is apparent as you and I read through Leviticus that it was impossible to obey all the commands and expectations of the law perfectly. However, that is what God commands from them and from us to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. But we realized before we could truly understand the Day of Atonement in chapter 16, we had to take a little bit of a detour to understand truly God's wrath or the wrath of God. I gave you a quote last week, Jonathan Edwards, in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached this, that there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. And that is the issue of all humanity. It's what all humanity faces when we're standing before a holy God. As rebellious sinners with an innate hatred of God, you and I are both all guilty and deserving of justice, which we know is from Scripture, death. The Old Testament prophet Nahum had proclaimed that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. This is not the God we like to think of, but yet this is Scripture as he reveals himself. He reveals himself as one who is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And again, we pointed out, again, just as a matter of review, who are God's adversaries? Who are God's enemies? Now, we think of Satan and the demons. Scripture tells us that you and I are. We are. And I know we don't like to think of this, but God has blessed us with what? Five little babies this last year. We love them. But we also know that each and every one of them is born with innate hatred of God. And is born as disobedient children and enemies of God. And that will be exhibited. Hence why we, we dedicate our children to the Lord. Not that they're, they're saved, that are saved them, but we're praying now that God will begin to call them to his own. That they'll, they'll see that day of atonement. But yet we must understand that all are under the heavy hand of a vengeful, wrathful God. Who will one day execute perfect justice and righteousness on all of his enemies. The problem is that you and I do not consider ourselves as enemies of God, at least at one time. The world does not. Many of our friends and family do not. And what the problem is, is we don't consider our sin as truly as an offense against the holy God. We just think of them as foibles. Even today from the pulpits and from churches, and I've been guilty of this as well is we think of sin as bad habits, foibles, mistakes that we've made. But sin is much more than that. It's an affront to a holy God. It's a fist shaken into the face 
of the Creator. Pastor John Piper, again, as a matter of review, and then we're going to head on, shared five facts about the wrath of God that you and I must understand as we move on to Leviticus 16. Is that God's wrath is just. It is deserving. God's wrath is to be feared because he can back up his claim and his promises. God's wrath is consistent in the Old and New Testament. We do not have one God of of wrath and justice and another God of just love and mercy in the New Testament. We must put them together. They are the full picture of who our God is. But we also need to understand that God's wrath is his love in action against sin. And fifthly, here's where we end with the hope. It's God's, God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. Today, as we go back to Leviticus 16, and I pray that you're there, and review God's fourth temporary solution, his redemption plan to redeem man, you and I are going to learn more of God's final solution as it points to the final solution to cover the sins of God's children and bring us back into his favor. With that, it's here on the monitor, but Leviticus 16, 34. Read this with me silently as I read out loud. Moses says, uh, recording God's word, says, And this shall be a statue for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. Let's pray. Father, give us wisdom here. Help us to understand your wrath. Let us not run from it. Let us not, not, let us not deny it or try to push it away, but let us come uh, face to face with it. For in there we find your grace and your mercy. We thank you for this chapter. And Lord, how it paints a beautiful picture of who Christ is and what he has accomplished for us as the Lamb of God. I pray that as I preach here that all who hear my voice are children of God. And they're rejoicing and worshiping the God who has redeemed them. If there's any that have not, Lord, I pray that you would bring them under conviction. That they would repent and turn towards you. And put their trust in your acceptance as Christ, as our atonement. Just bring us into reflection. Lord, let us not be distracted. But Lord, let us respond to your work. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Today, many people struggle with the concept of the wrath of God. We talked about that last week. Many have denied its existence or try to minimize its importance. Earlier, we sung the song, In Christ Alone. And that's a wonderful song. Probably one of my, I say this, one of my favorites, okay? Everything's famous and favorite for me. But it's a wonderful song that portrays the amazing grace of the gospel. Some of the phrases that speak volumes to me is that in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. The songwriter then captures the love of God when they write, In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the very ones that he came to save. For every sin on him was laid here on the death. Of Christ I live. The accomplishment of Christ's work is clear when we sing, Sin's curse is lost, it's grip on me. How many of you does that not raise your spirit? If not, it should. For I am his and he is mine. I'm bought with the precious blood of Christ. What a wonderful song. However, 
There is one line that many have found too harsh and have asked that the writers change. As you look on the monitor, that line simply states the scriptural truth that till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Did you remember singing that line? Now that line should have a wonderful meaning to those that are his children. It should bring us not only to the cross, but back here to Leviticus 16. But interestingly, several church denominations who desire to use that song in their hymnals, and it's one of the most popular songs in hymnals today and in Christian songs, have sought to change the phrase, on the cross, Jesus died, but they want to change the wrath of God to the love of God was man magnified. Still rhymes, but instead of satisfied, we can say the love of God was magnified. Now, at first blush, that doesn't seem like much of a change. I mean, it is true. Romans 5, 8 says that God shows his love or demonstrated his love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if that was the original wording of it, I would not have been unsatisfied. I would not have been uh, disturbed. However, the writers of the song, realizing the importance of that one phrase, the wrath of God was satisfied, have said no way. They refuse to do it. And many church hymnals, Presbyterians and others, Methodists, have just taken that song and said, then we will not sing it or print it. Well, they may sing it. They'll just change the words. There are some websites that have come up with a whole list of other phrases that you can put in its place. However, it's the motivation for the change that should cause you and I to pause and the first motivation that we're going to look at this week comes is from a denial of God's wrath against rebellious sinners. They don't want to think of God's wrath and in themselves as rebellious sinners. And in many ways, I can just understand that struggle. No one wants to think of that. No one wants to think of God as an angry, raging deity that seeks to punish us. That's not the God that we love or the God that we want to serve. We want a God that God is love. God is this, all the good things. Ben Vogt, I'm going to embarrass him just for a moment, captured that thought in our men's group this past Thursday when he commented that often we correlate or compare God's wrath with ours. And I think that was an astute saying. We impose how we deal with anger and rage and believe God reacts the same way. Take a moment and just to consider what has been happening just the last few weeks. When Judge Brad Kavanaugh responded strongly to the accusation against him, which he considered unjust and politically motivated, it divided people into two camps, did it not? There were those who believed he responded in righteous anger, motivated to protect his name and his family. However, there were others who believed he responded in uncontrolled anger, making him unqualified in temperament to serve on the Supreme Court. He had also, it also demonstrated in how media and other views those who have continued the protest these last few weeks. There are some that have considered the protesters as, 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 one, as whose, whose actions and words are dangerous and they regard them as mobs. While others consider the protesters, their actions as words as a righteous response in order to demonstrate their grievance. Now I want to be clear. I'm not advocating either position or want to make a political statement. That's not what I'm here about this morning. 
But what I'm trying to point out that it is wrong to compare man's anger with the righteous anger of a holy, pure, and perfect God. God is not a man who is controlled by his emotions. Scripture teaches us that all sin is a front to the holy God, and it warns us, God himself warns us in Romans chapter 9, or chapter 12, excuse me, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, and you know this phrase, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Pastor John MacArthur notes that God is not an enraged deity needing something or someone to calm him down. No, his wrath against sin is a judicial loathing of all evil. Important words, judicial loathing. One who stands in judgment against that which is evil. And you and I understand that. You and I understand justice. Many protesters, many of us, do the same thing. We call for justice when something happens that we consider unjust. We want something done. But this judicial accounting comes in the form of the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement demonstrates both God's justice and God's mercy. Scripture reveals that God is a holy and righteous God who cannot allow rebellion and disobedience to go unpunished. The psalmist sings that God is a righteous judge and a God, and listen to this, who feels indignation every day. Have you ever met someone like that? They're just feel indignation every day. He's given us the emotion here of God as he's confronted by sin and rebellion by his very own creation. Scripture declares that all of humanity is found guilty. The prophet Hosea proclaimed in our scripture reading earlier that all we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone what? To his own way. Paul writes in Romans 3.10, you'll see it here on the monitor just to stay with me. That none is righteous, no, not one. There is none that understand. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become what? Worthless. No one does good. Not even one. He goes on to quote the Old Testament. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. This is describing humanity here. This is you and I. This is the mirror of scripture showing us exactly who we are. He goes on to describe us as those whose feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And that there is no fear of God before their eyes. Pastor Milton Vincent describes our heart accurately. When he writes, going our own way and living according to our own wisdom, you and I have broken countless times either the letter or the spirit of every one of God's Ten Commandments. Amen? The just reward for our rebellious disobedience is death. 
God's justice demands that the penalty of sin be paid, the penalty of death. And God is within his rights to condemn man for his rebellious disobedience to his commands. However, however, Instead of requiring that we pay the penalty that justice demands, Yahweh provides a path to redemption. Amen? It has been pointed to in an earlier parts of the Old Testament, but here as we come to Leviticus, he's codifying for the children of Israel what is needed, a sacrifice. The psalmist sings now, not only of God's justice, but also of God's mercy. Being compassionate, he sings of God, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. God restrained his anger often and he did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. You see, you and I could not stand in the wind of God's wrath. We think of Hurricane Michael. Many of us have seen the pictures and you see the destruction of nothing left standing. Let me tell you, that is not even a glimpse of the wrath of God that waits for his enemies and those that oppose him. But yet God in his mercy also has given us something sweeter than you and I could ever imagine. Now this comes to us, this brings us to the fourth point of Leviticus. We've been looking through the four points. This is the fourth point. It's here in the monitor. Is Leviticus now foreshadows forgiveness of sin. Leviticus foreshadows the forgiveness of sin in the one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. But let me share with you this. Forgiveness comes at a high cost. Let me say it again. I want you to remember this. Forgiveness comes at a high cost. Why? Because sin brings a mighty cost. Justice requires a sacrifice. In Hebrews 9.22, you and I are informed that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Sin causes death. So the forgiveness of sin is also going to be a sacrifice, the death. But mercy, now get this, and I want you to get it. Justice requires a sacrifice, death. But mercy provides a substitute. Justice demands a sacrifice. But mercy provides, provides a substitute. The day of atonement points to the need of a redeemer and a substitute. One who can stand in the face of God's wrath, take our penalty, even if only temporarily, as we're speaking in Leviticus 16. Remember, that's the weakness of the temporary solution. It's temporary because it cannot do all it intends to do. Leviticus climaxes in the glorious day of atonement, that day when all of Israel's sin was forgiven. 
Sacrifices were made to cleanse the temple to atone for the sins of the high priest and the people. Do you see that? That even the temple itself was not considered holy before God. It too would have to be cleansed by the sacrifice, a substitute by the blood of an animal. The root meaning in English word that means atone means to bring together into harmony to those who have been separated or become enemies. So it's being reconciled. It's bringing into harmony. In the Old Testament, it means to cover all. It doesn't mean to take away, but it means to cover over. And the price to cover the penalty is that of a sacrifice. Again, the sin of rebellion against the holy God is a capital crime. And it requires death. Now, the atonement accomplishes four things. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it, it accomplishes four things. First, it demonstrates God's hatred of sin. Sin causes the innocent to die and the guilty as well. But death comes at a, or sin comes at a high cost. Sin is so contagious that the most holy place even had to be cleansed. Thirdly, it points forward to the death of the Lamb of God. And fourth, it was repetitious. It only showed that it was temporary. In his book, The Biblical Doctrine, the editor notes that the Day of Atonement temporarily and temporally, speaking here on the earth, and temporarily expiated or made amends the nation's sin. It cleansed the sanctuary from the pollution caused by those sins and it removed those sins from the community so that God accepted their worship. This was not personal salvation. Now remember this, what the Day of Atonement here is not personal salvation because that is always by faith alone. It was pointing to something greater. So here's the main point that I want you to get. That the atonement is propitiatory. That's a tough word. So the question is, what is propitiation? On the monitor, I give you a simple definition. The word propitiation carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction, specifically toward God. Propitiation is a two-part act that involves appeasing the wrath of God of a offended person and being reconciled to him. So today we're looking at how the sacrifice and the substitution of the lamb and the goat, and as it points to Christ, appease the wrath of God. Next week, we'll look at how it brings us into his favor or brings us, makes us reconciled to them. So if you're there, Luke 16, or Luke 16, Leviticus 16, we're going to see how God's wrath was satisfied. First, as you look at verse 3 and verse 6 and verse 11, you're going to see that the high priest offered the bull as a sin offering for himself and his family. So the high priest himself was not holy, even by his position. He would have to put on his clothing and he would have to offer a sacrifice first for him and his, and his family of priests so that they could then serve the people. As you go into verse 5 and 9 and 15, you'll see that the high priest sacrificed one of the goats as a sin offering for the people. So now the goat was for the sins of the people. And then number three, so there's three sacrifices that happened on that day. The high priest offered two rams as burnt offerings for himself and then all the people. 
So you see, sacrifice was key to the Day of Atonement. It was key to atone for the sins of God's people, that they may earn his favor. Now, as we read through this chapter, you're going to read the words in Leviticus 16. Look at verse 31, where God is speaking to Moses and he says, This day is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. And you shall afflict yourself, speaking of fasting and remembering who God is and who they are. It is a statue forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as the priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. Verse 33, he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. Once again, he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. That cleansing comes from the blood of the bull, the ram, and one of the goats who were sacrificed as substitutes for the people. And see, that's something to recognize. Is not only does God require a penalty of sin, but he provides a substitute. This was pointed in in the Garden of Eden. This was pointed to with Isaac and Abraham. This is pointed throughout the sacrificial system and now codified here for, in Leviticus for the children of Israel. Is that God provides atonement, a way for them to come and approach them, approach God, but yet he provides a substitute. He's not requiring the death penalty for them. The innocent for the guilty, the blameless for the blameful. Look at verse 31 as we read that this was done so that on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. Or it might be verse 30. I think I'm, I'm off on my verses here. It says, on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Now, these sacrifices that we read in Leviticus 16, and I pray that you've been reading through this the last few weeks. And so you understand this short chapter. These sacrifices covered the sins of the people, even if only temporarily. For scripture tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, that it's impossible, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Hence why atonement means covering, not taking. So, so think of all the, the coffee stains that we may have here. You could put a potted plant over the stain. It doesn't take away the stain, it just covers it. And that's where they're setting here. However, God had a better plan. Because I don't know about you, but it's not enough just to cover a stain. I'd prefer to have it taken out completely, would you not? To have it removed other than just to remember, oh, why that potted plant in such a strange place? Why is that picture on the wall? Well, it covers something. Don't pull it down. I'm not sure what will happen if you do so. It's like when we walk around here and we see little screws and nails and stuff in walls from... The 50, 60 years we've been here, never pull on one because I don't know what will happen. God had a better plan. The day of atonement pointed to the one sacrifice that would earn our permanent forgiveness and true cleansing as the final substitute to bear the wrath of God. For every sin, the song in Christ alone says, on him was laid. See, here's what it's pointing to. Year after year, they would have to bring another bull, another ram, another two goats and sacrifice three of them over and over again every year for that which could not be 
fully taken away, just covered for another year. It's like, well, I'll put this here and I'll, I'll remind me that I need to take care of it. But eventually God said that that's not enough. I'm pointing to something greater. Paul writes, and you know what? Why don't you turn to this with me? Let's take a break here. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Many of you know this passage of scripture, or at least you know verse 23. Maybe you haven't read all the way through or know the verse, other verses that come after, but they're just as important for us. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. As the day of atonement, Leviticus 16, is a wonderful answer to how God is going to deal with the sins of the people, but yet it was not fully effective. It wasn't intended to do so. It was intended to point to something greater. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, I think it says, For there is this distinction that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24 is where we want to go. And they are justified or made right with God. By his grace as a what? As a gift. Not something that's earned. Through the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. Here's 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's why these words are important. Many of these words are forgotten, but you must know this. That God, that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation and as an appeasement. By his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. They were just covered, not fully dealt with. Verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Leviticus 16, that, that climax of the Day of Atonement, points to one who will fully, once and for all, take care of our sin as the one sacrifice for all time, the one final substitute that no longer needs to be done. So not only will sins not just be covered over, but be taken care of fully. You see, Christ's death on the cross was the payment of a penalty that fully satisfied the wrath and righteousness of God. Again, going to propitiation, it meant the basic idea of appeasement. And that's what, when God poured his wrath, he poured his wrath on Christ. You see that in Isaiah 53. And I encourage you, if you haven't done this already, mark that passage of scripture in your Bible. Print it out and put it in a place where you can spend some time uh, during the weeks and months just considering that passage. It pleased God to crush Jesus as that sacrifice and the substitute for us. It was his will. Why? So that you and I could have our sins forgiven and be reconciled back to a holy God. You see, Jesus became flesh, human in order, as the writer of Hebrews says, that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Remember, the high priest had to do it for himself and then his family before he could ever attend to the temple or attend to the people. But Jesus becomes human in the flesh so that he may become that high priest who is able to stand and make final sacrifice 
for us. He stands as a better, pure high priest who presents the sacrifice before God. Yet not only does he serve as the high priest, but he also serves as the sacrifice. As we read in our scripture reading earlier, that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed. The blood of bulls and goats and rams could not do that. God's love for his children, even though they were rebellious sinners, demanded that justice be done. But yet, even in his performance of justice, God showed his mercy. The Apostle John writes that in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. How? By sending his son to be the propitiation for our sin. The one who receives the full brunt of the wrath of God. The one who can stand and contend with a holy God. Receive it into himself, drinking fully from the cup that he did not deserve. In order that our sins are more than just covered up, but fully forgiven. Past, present, future. I will admit, especially in these last two weeks, dwelling on the wrath of God is not easy. Many of us just want to think about how much God is love and how much he sent his son. Many of us would prefer to forget it, neglect it, deny it, deflect it. Yet true justice demands that sin be punished. And the wrath of God or his justice serves a purpose. Hence why you and I, as we read through scripture, must consider this wrath of God even today in our state as children of God. For its purpose is to bring us to himself. Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for his destruction? Why is God not just taking people out left and right, those who oppose him right then and there? Why? It's to show his wrath and his power. He wants us to turn our eyes towards him. Remember, his kindness is meant to what? Give us another chance to shake our fist at him? Or his kindness is meant for us to take uh, advantage of him? That's how we work in this world, right? No, his kindness is meant to lead us to, anybody? Repentance. The good Dr. Luke in his history of the early New Testament church in Acts records this. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So you and I must reflect on the wrath of God that was satisfied in Christ because it is an evangelistic word that must go out. Do not stand before a holy God in your own power and own 
word. For you will fail each and every time. One biblical teacher named Colin Smith writes this, that the outpouring of God's wrath was the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. It's interesting. God's wrath was the greatest act of love, but it was also the greatest sin ever perpetuated in the world. The death of his son. The hope for sinners is that between us and the wrath of God stands the cross of Jesus. Sin was laid on Jesus and the divine wrath was poured out on him. It was spent, and I love this word, and exhausted in the darkness of Calvary. I love what the gospel primer says. God no longer for his children ever has any wrath. What is uh, uh, Romans 8, 1? There is therefore no condemnation towards those who are in Christ Jesus. God has no wrath stored up for you. It is exhausted no longer to be poured out on you. When it was done, he writes, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, it is finished. The wrath of God that will one day be poured on all the sins that was spent on the cross with regard all who are in him. He goes on to write, and with this I'm going to finish. Then Christ rose from the dead, and he stands before you today a living Savior. He offers you the priceless gift of peace with God. He is ready to forgive you of your sins and to fill you with his Spirit. He is able to save you from the wrath and reconcile you to the Father. He has opened the door of heaven, and he is able to bring you in. And my, my plea for you and any, us, any others who may see this is would you please come to the one who is the greatest sacrifice and is the substitute for you. The hope for sinners is that between us and the wrath of God stands the cross of Jesus. Amen. Every head bowed and every head closed as the worship team comes up. <coughs> I'd like for you to just take a moment to pause and consider of the Day of Atonement and what Scripture has said today about the wrath of God and God's provision that His justice may be not only is it required a sacrifice, but He also provides the substitute for the sacrifice. Jesus stands for you and I. For the Hebrew children of Leviticus 16, they look forward to the bulls, the goats, the rams, looking forward to something that has not yet been accomplished. Year after year, they would have to do this. But Jesus died once for all. Let us share this message. Let us dwell on the wrath of God. Glorifying God that we've escaped that wrath. And be willing to share the love of God that others may see and come to know him. I'd ask you to pray and would you respond to whatever God may be calling you today. Maybe to respond to him for the first time. That you may come into the kingdom. We'd love to show you how. I'm going to ask our elders to stand up in front. If any of you want to know how you too can escape the wrath of God. 
and accept the sacrifice and substitute of Christ, they're here to show you how you may do that today. For today is the day of salvation. Maybe you're here and you just need to ask for, confess and ask for more strength and dwelling and understanding. We'll be standing here this morning to help you through that. But let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we just come before you and we just thank you for the cross. We thank you for that day of atonement, Leviticus 16, that pointed we see something greater than they do. We look back to the cross, they're looking forward to it. But Father, I thank you that Jesus stood as the perfect sacrifice. And Lord, that he received in himself the full wrath of God that was designed and deserved by me. I can never comprehend that fully. But Lord, let us not be amiss or remiss to not think and consider not just your love, but the cost of your love and forgiveness. And may we approach you with gladness and boldness and with the worship that pleases you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.